Good morning. My name is Lena Bating, and I'm a member of the Board of Women here at MPC. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, 
The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are continuing our series on the gospel in the life of David. Uh, Last week our senior pastor James taught us and showed us the kindness that David uh, showed to Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. This week I am mainly excited, well not mainly, but I am excited that I don't have to say Mephibosheth uh, over and over again. Well done, James. Um, We come to a a chapter and a side of David unlike anything we've seen up until this point. And we're going to spend actually the next few weeks looking at this season of David's life. But before we dive into our passage this morning, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, we have ask it in song, and now we ask it in prayer that that you would speak to us, that you would indeed be our vision. When left to ourselves, we don't see as you see. Our default setting is to look away from you and look for light and life and lesser things. In this hour, in these minutes, be our vision. By your spirit, give us the ability to see, and by your grace, reveal yourself to us through this, your word. In the name of Christ, who time and again made blind men see, we pray. Amen. For many of you, it might be a a helpful exercise this morning to actually step away from this narrative or this story a little bit, because maybe you grew up in church Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and, and you're familiar with this story. You know how it ends and there's, there's this latent danger of familiarity. So maybe for you it's helpful to step away a bit. Maybe imagine yourself walking into church for the first time today. You've come to enjoy a quaint and refined church service. You sit down and all of a sudden there's this lady, Liz, up there reading this passage about a king and adultery and deceit and murder, and you're like, what in the world? And for some of you, you don't need to go through this exercise because maybe that's your life right now. Maybe you came here this morning because it's Mother's Day and you wanted to do Mama Solid, and so you showed up to church today, and you're like, hey, uh, I was really just kind of hoping for one of those uh, moms are great, let's be nice to mom messages today. (laughs) I didn't know we were going to get into all of this. Right, But if you're come today and maybe you're the friend, maybe you're investigating Christianity, uh, you're going to see real quick and real clearly 
that our scriptures speak to the brokenness and the mess of the world that we live in. In Christianity, there is no place for Pollyannish naivety, right? I think in some ways we can even see it, say that this is what authenticates, something that authenticates our scriptures. Because if you were fabricating a religion, you would not write stories like this about your heroes. But yet we read it and here it is. One more perspective it might be helpful for us to adopt. And that's the perspective of the, of the original audience. Imagine if you're the original audience and you're reading the story and you've been tracking David's life. You've been, he's become this larger-than-life hero to you, a literal giant slayer. Courage, heroism of extraordinary measure, and you're reading along, you're tracking along, and then you come to this chapter, and you, you come and see your hero do, do this. You say, wait, our king did what? David did what? It would be devastating. Imagine the disillusionment. Right, the, the king that you just saw sit Mephibosheth at his table has in this chapter put Uriah in his grave. And, and yet, the title at the top of the chapter, if you're looking in your Bible, the, the title right there at the top says, David and Bathsheba. Right, you know, that's, that's not in the original text. It's added by the editors just to help you track along, know where you're at. But that's not the only re relationship we see in this chapter, right? Yeah, yeah, there's David and Bathsheba, but there's David and Uriah, there's David and Joab, and there's David and God. And so as we go along, as we make our way through this passage, we're going to examine David's disobedience and how it affects all of these relationships. We're going to look at two things this morning, the nature of David's rebellion and the nature of God's grace. The nature of David's rebellion and the nature of God's grace. Let's start with the nature of David's rebellion and let's start with the setting or the scene of his rebellion. Where does it begin? Interestingly enough, his downfall begins with success. Right, we're in chapter 11. If you would have looked at chapters 9 and 10, he, he's doing well. He's waging war. He's winning really, like we said, the whole story up until this point. He's doing well. He's had a couple hiccups, a, a couple challenges, but mainly those are when the circumstances have become very difficult. From the outside looking in, he looks like he's winning, right? But do you remember that illustration that James used several weeks back about the picture of Dorian Gray? Remember the guy who saw this portrait of himself and he wished that he wouldn't age but that the portrait would age? He wanted to stay looking youthful and great and he hoped the portrait might age. And that's exactly what ended up happening. That as, as he lived this life and as he sunk deeper into crime and evil, that portrait began to look more and more hideous. It began to reflect his soul. And in some ways here in chapter 11, we have a portrait of David's soul. We get to see what it looks like. Look there at verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Some of you are intimately familiar with battle and with war. Some of you know full well that 
Battles sometimes have seasonal realities to them. Conflicts and context sometimes dictate that they have seasonal realities. Just last month, an article uh, on NPR's website started this way. With the arrival of spring comes the return of the fighting season in Afghanistan. All right, even to this day, there are seasonal realities to conflict. It's fighting season now for David. Things have been going well for him. It's literally the time when kings go out to battle. But what does he do? Uh, We read that David sent his right-hand man. He sent his servants. He sent Israel. But then comes this very deliberate sentence. And, And feel free to underline this phrase. It says, but David remained at Jerusalem. The king said, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. Things have been going well. I'm going to stay back home. I'm not going to engage what God has called me to do. I'm not going to lead. I'm going to stay here, rest on my laurels a little bit. He should have been leading his people, but he's not. Let me ask, isn't it true of us that sometimes uh, success uh, poses a great danger to us? Right? We don't think about it that much because we're so worried about failure, almost obsessively so that we don't think about the dangers that success presents us. Kids know something about the dangers of success, or at least we see it in, in some of uh, our kids' realities. Uh, it's safe to say that Christmas Day, Christmas morning, kids, that is, uh, in a way, one of your most successful mornings, right? <laughs> I mean, you just have to wake up, and all of a sudden, there are all these presents. You know, so in a way, that's a pretty big success. And if success just made all of our issues and challenges go away, then Christmas morning would be one of the happiest, most blissful, most conflict-free mornings of the year, right? And surely none of you kids have ever woken up that morning, gotten more toys than you could ever hope to play with on that morning, and still somehow ended up in fights with your siblings about not wanting to share your toys. I know that's not happening with any of the kids in here, but I've heard about it happening elsewhere, all right? Success poses the challenges to adults as well, because when we enter into success, like David's entering and living in his success, we believe or are tempted to believe that we've gotten here because of our own effort, because of all that we've done, because of how great we are. As we move into success, we, we move into the temptation to become self-reliant and prideful. And the greatest danger of success is that as we enter into it, we are tempted to forget God. So I'm not suggesting that you avoid success or that you loathe success, but I am pleading with you that you, you not be naive to the challenges that it presents, that you need just as much grace from your God to navigate faithfully the sunny days of your life as you do the dark nights of your soul. That's, that's the setting of David's rebellion. That's where he's at. He's stayed home from battle. And let's look now at the seed of his rebellion, where it all starts, where it begins. He stayed home from battle. He's actually up on the roof, and he sees this woman. We don't get the sense that he's gone out looking for her, right? But he's up where he shouldn't be because he should be in battle. And he, he spies this lady, and he asks a question. 
You see that? What's his first action? What's his first step? What is he doing? The beginning of all this process, we need to look at it. The very first thing he, he asks, the very first thing he does is ask a question. David says in verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. That's the first step of this whole tragic scenario. He, he had no business asking that question, right? Right? The answer to that question, David, is not your wife. Right? The answer to that question, David, is it doesn't really matter because you're supposed to be out in battle, not up on top of this roof. Right? The answer to that question is she's a loyal subject. She's a woman that you're supposed to protect and defend and honor. That's the answer to that question. Uh, <clears throat> see how small this seed is that unleashes this tragedy in the life of David and so many others. We don't want to miss that. There's no such thing as a, a safe sin. Even the smallest one should not be trifled with. Imagine if you could press pause right there with David and you could say, hey, David, by pursuing the answer to this question, you are going to violate a woman. You are going to betray and murder a close friend and loyal soldier. You are going to disobey and dishonor your God who has loved you and seen you to this point in your life. If you go after the answer to this one question. No such thing as safe sins. No such thing as Nerf gun sins, right? Okay, Nerf guns, safe guns, mostly safe guns to play with. Right, no, even the smallest of sins, when you engage that, that's live ammunition that can have deadly consequences. Let's, let's take it uh, off of the rooftops of ancient palaces and let's put it in Fairfax County in 2018. What's little seemingly safe sins that you can trifle with, that people trifle with, that have devastating consequences? I'll give you just one. Uh, searches on Facebook. Entering in a name on Facebook and hitting that little magnifying glass icon. That is, um, <clears throat> I, wonder what, I wonder what ever happened to her, right? I wonder where she's at now. I'm just going to look her up. Or, uh, you know, it would be nice to reconnect with him. I know it was a long time ago, but I'm just going to send him this friend request. Just by asking those simple questions in 2018 has ruined a myriad of lives. You don't believe me. Listen to divorce attorney James Sexton. Uh, his book came out last month. It's called, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. Hear what he says. If I had a dollar for every divorce caused by infidelity that started on Facebook, I would have, well, just about the same amount of money I have. Bless you, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> He goes on to say, I don't keep detailed statistics on these things, but if I had to estimate, I would say I get two or three new cases per week that feature infidelity that started or was made easy to perpetuate by Facebook. Who knew one platform could cause so much chaos? Or said in another way, who knew that toying around with sin could bring so much devastation? And middle schoolers and high schoolers, you're probably hopefully not thinking about divorce right now, but you need to know as well. Social media, the internet, is not a safe place to dabble in sin. It can ruin your life. Small seeds there can have devastating consequences. 
So let me ask you this morning, what is it, friends? What is that small sin that you're tempted to toy around with it? What workplace relationship is it? What, what little uh, liberties on your expense account is it? What neighbor is it that you're just a little too friendly with? Where you're fooling yourself to think, well, this is safe to mess around with. Nothing could come from that. Small seeds of sin grow in ways that destroy relationships and in lives. You need to know that. We've seen the setting of David's sin. We've seen the seed of it. And now let's look at the scope of his rebellion. We mentioned that list earlier, Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, and God, starting with Bathsheba. You know, it's, it's interesting, as much energy and emotion as we have when we come to this, as much as it almost makes us feel awkward, the initial encounter with Bathsheba, it's contained in one single verse. Verse 4, and there's no scandalous details. There's no embellishment. There's just perfunctory verb after perfunctory verb. We read them there. Sent, took, lay, return. You know, the author seems intent on making sure the audience uh, isn't tempted to believe that Bathsheba is complicit with this in any way. He mentions her name only once in the whole chapter. He has her speak only three words, and those three words just to make clear the consequences of David's rebellion. Now, this chapter is about David. It's about his rebellion and the nature of it. And, and here's something about the nature of his rebellion. Here's something about the nature of our rebellion and our sin. This is what sin and rebellion does. It causes us to use people instead of serve people. It causes us to use people instead of serve pe- people. David is this king. He has this authority, an authority that's supposed to be used to serve and protect. And what does he do? He uses it to exploit and abuse Bathsheba. And now we can't look at a verse like this. We can't stand in a passage like this and not call to mind and not not be aware of the Me Too movement that's gone on recently, right? Men in authority abusing that authority to abuse and exploit women. We have to sadly admit that there are times when the church has failed to condemn this kind of abuse and behavior. We have to be even sadder to confess that there's times when the church has engaged in this kind of abuse. And we need to repent of that. And we need to be very clear. We need to speak unwaveringly that the church, that we must never condone any kind of emotional or physical or sexual abuse. And we must never allow for it to be covered up in any way. There's nothing loving or serving or honoring about what David does with Bathsheba. It's, it's self-centered. It's self-gratifying. And David, you know what? He almost gets away with it, right? Maybe no one would have ever known, but Bathsheba comes back and she speaks her three words. She says, I am pregnant. That's another thing about rebellion and sin is it doesn't stay hidden. It does not stay hidden. And you might say, sure it does, Rob. Don't be naive. There's plenty of liaisons that don't end in pregnancies. Plenty of them stay hidden. But we'll come to see that's not the case. All right? So this has happened, and uh, what does David do? David goes into full-on Washington, D.C. mode. All right? It is time for a cover-up. 
So what does he do? He calls back Uriah from the battle. He calls him back from the, the battlefield, and, and his plan is to have him be with her to cover up his tracks, right? He wants to, to kind of give him an alibi, give him some cover. He brings them back from the field and wants to get them together, but Uriah will have none of it, right? After some small talk, asking how things are back on the battle, he says, hey, why don't you go be with your wife? But yet Uriah refuses. Again, he says, why don't you go be with your wife? And we read these, verse, uh, these words in verse 11. The ark and Israel, this is Uriah. Uh, just look at the irony, okay? Just look at this irony as Uriah speaks to David. He says, David, the, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other, in other words, he says, uh, with all due respect, king, I care too much about God and God's people and my men out on the field that I'm not going to go back and enjoy these comforts that I'm fully entitled to enjoy. Uh, surely you can understand that, king. Right? Uh, but David applies that principle. As if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. He tries to get Uriah drunk and make it happen that way. It doesn't happen. And so then he turns to Joab. He's going to use Joab. Sin leads us to use people, not serve people. And so he turns to Joab and says, hey, I know you're fighting a battle. And I know in battle every man counts. Right? And I know there's supposed to be this loyalty among this band of brothers. And I know there's, you probably don't have a, sh a soldier more honorable more faithful, more courageous than this Uriah guy. But I want you to kill him. Look at the friend we have in David. Look at the general we have in David. Just to sum it up, verse 17, Uriah is dead. Verse 22, the news reaches Israel. Verse 27, he is married to Bathsheba. Imagine the portrait of David's soul at this point. Imagine what that portrait would look like, and hopefully, you can start to even imagine the portrait of your own soul. When you think about that, what do you think it looks like? When you read David here, when you see his life, do you think you're above him? Do you think you're better than him? Because the second that you start thinking, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just better than that guy, is the second you start heading down the same path he headed down. You know, my message this morning is, is not ultimately don't be like David. It'd be easy to stand up here and say, hey, don't be like David. But the problem is it's already too late, right? We are like David. You see, the seeds of sin were in his devout heart. He was a devout mind that had done great things for God. But the seeds of the most despicable sins were in his heart, and they're in our heart as well. But Thankfully, we're not just considering the nature of David's rebellion. We're also considering the nature of God's grace. So let's look at the last couple verses of our passage. We've talked about David and Bathsheba, David and Uriah, David and Joab. Let's look at David and the Lord. We see it there in verse uh, 27 of chapter 11 and verse 1. God enters into the picture. Verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right? We, don't see, we don't see God in this entire passage until right now, but we're made clear that it displeased God. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Del Ralph Davis, says this, The silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. 
Just because God is silent doesn't mean he's sightless, right? There's no liaison that's hidden from the eyes of God, not David's or not ours. We see that this displeases God. Some of us need to see the seriousness of God's judgment against this. He, he doesn't like what David has done. But now look with me at the final verse of our passage, the, the first several words of chapter 12. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know what it doesn't say there? It doesn't say, and the Lord gave up on David. It doesn't say, and the Lord finally had it with David because David blew it in an ultimate way. It doesn't say that, and the Lord never spoke to David again. No, we see here that God goes after him. God pursues him. Even though David's on this hell-bound race, the hound of heaven is pursuing after him. Friends, this is radical, extravagant incredible grace you know i think this is why some are tempted to reject christianity right but some, some think well i'm not that bad uh, they, they see david and they well i'm not that bad and i really don't need this kind of grace some say no i'm really too bad and there's no way grace is that simple or grace is that free but friends indeed it is Grace is that free that God would send a prophet to David even though he had messed up royally in some 2,000 years later. Or 2,000 years ago, I'm sorry. Some 2,000 years ago, God sends a true and greater prophet in Jesus Christ to take care of David's sin and to take care of our sins. Right? Jesus comes and he's this true and greater king. He's not a king that comes to exploit his authority to be a master over people, but he's a king that comes to serve. Jesus is a priest, and he comes, and he doesn't come to see others lose their lives to cover up his transgression. He comes to lose his sinless life to cover up others' transgression and bring forgiveness. That's who our Savior is. Let me finish by just talking to three people. All right, I want to talk to three people in closing application. One, I want to speak to those who might be here this morning, and you've never accepted this grace. You've never accepted the reality of your, your rebellion, maybe. Maybe you've never accepted this grace of Christ into your life, and I want to let you know that you can do that this morning, that you're not beyond the need or the reach of God's grace. If you believe in him, if you trust in him, you can have salvation in him. And we'd love to talk to you this morning if that's where you're at. I also want to talk to those who might be in the place of David. And when I say in the place of David, I mean you're right where he's at in this chapter. You're neck deep in, in cover-up mode. You're neck deep in deception and hiding. And maybe, maybe you think I'm speaking just to you. Maybe you think I know something. All right? I don't. The Holy Spirit does. All right? And maybe he is calling you home. Would you listen to him this morning? And the third person I want to speak to is maybe the, the ones that are thankfully not in those places. Maybe you are walking with God. But let me encourage you. Ask for grace to remain vigilant. All right? Don't take it for granted. Examine your life. 
Where are those places you're tempted to toy with sin? Here we talk about worship, community, and mission. You're here at worship, and that's great. But where are you connecting with community, and where are you connecting with mission? Notice David's life. No community in this passage. He had stepped back from mission in this passage. You're not in a healthy space if you're not connected to community, if you're not connected to mission. Let us help you connect to those places so that you don't wind up here, so that you know this love and grace of Christ. We're not done with David's story and looking at it because God's not done with David's story. And thankfully, he's not done with our stories either. Despite our rebellion and the nature of it, his grace is greater still. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this good news of Christ. Give us vision, all of us this morning, to see, to see the bad news of our rebellion, but to see with ever more focus the good news of the grace of Christ that's come into our life, that's offered to us in him, in whose name we pray. Amen.